Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Now we're going to be in, obviously, in the book of Acts. I'm going to go through the 13th chapter. I'm going to fly through that chapter. I want to get to the 14th chapter, which is really where the essence of my sermon is today. I call the 13th chapter a bridge because there are some things in there I want to cover with you, but I don't have enough inf- uh, resource in the 13th chapter to make a sermon. So I just want to highlight some things there because it would not complete the story if we just completely ignored the chapter. Uh, I will acquaint us with some of the things going on there, then I'll move quickly to the 14th chapter. And I'll get down really to my final point that I want to emphasize today in this sermon. And that is the title of my sermon, A Faith That Never Quits. Now, chapters 12 and 13 are a turning point in the narrative of Acts. It goes from really an account of the the exploits of of the early church, the early church leaders, to now turning to a point of focusing mainly on Paul as the main character throughout the rest of the book of Acts. That's the reason this is kind of a turning point. And we do find in this part that Saul uh, is, is suddenly called Paul. Some people have looked at that and tried to tie Saul's renaming uh, to Paul as connected with his conversion, his salvation. That's, that simply is not true. It wasn't a matter of having met Jesus Christ on that, on that road and catching that vision that he suddenly decided to be Paul. This is uh, some 14 years later. Luke chose to use that because Paul was his Greek name. Now, the Jews had their Jewish name, and they had a Greek name, and it wasn't uncommon for the Greek name to sound similar to their Jewish name, such as in case of Saul and Paul. They just tried to make that happen if it made any sense. And so because Paul is now going to be seen in the rest of the book of Acts as mainly a missionary to the Gentiles, uh, Luke appropriately now calls him by his Greek name rather than his Jewish name to more or less fit the narrative. He's no longer uh, Saul the Jew, but he's Paul the missionary to the Gentiles. That's an explanation for the change in his name. There's some interesting events in this 13th chapter that I want to highlight. And uh, one of them is that Barnabas and Saul team up and travel from Antioch to Syria, uh, in, in Antioch in Syria to another Antioch in Pisidia, uh, so as to not confuse the two Antiochs. And furthermore, that Barnabas arranged for his cousin, John Mark, to join with them. That wouldn't prove to be a successful decision, as we will find out uh, later in this sermon as well as uh, in future sermons. And Barnabas 
John Mark turned back. He, he didn't finish this tour with them. And then Barnabas later on, when Paul and Barnabas wanted to take their second missionary journey, uh, Barnabas said, well, let's, let's get John Mark and do it again. And Paul said, no, he's not coming. So whatever John Mark did in turning back uh, did not set well with Paul. He decided he's not fit for this. We don't know why John Mark turned back. We can speculate. Some speculations may seem reasonable. They might be accurate. We just don't know for a fact. We know that when John Mark left, he didn't go back and give a report to Antioch, the, the head of Gentile outreach. He went straight back to Jerusalem. So it just seemed like he bypassed his duties. He went back. Maybe, if we're going to speculate, maybe John Mark did not see uh, this kind of ministry as his kind of ministry. Maybe he wasn't fully comfortable with ministering to the Gentiles. Now, that, I'm stretching it. I'm just speculating. But whatever he did didn't please Paul. We know that. So if it's the fact that John Mark, just, it just wasn't his thing to go reach Gentiles. He was interested in maybe reaching Jews or something. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't live up to his expectations of what it would mean to go out in ministry. So we went back. And at that point, I'm going to pause for just a second, and I'm, I'm going to talk about your giftings, and we've, we talked about that uh, a sermon or two ago, and your calling. And John Mark was ordained and called to go with Paul and Barnabas, but he aborted that. He quit. And if my speculation has any credibility, if it's correct, and if he gets into this and he decides, this is just not my thing, this is not where I'm gifted, then the application I see from that is, there's a lot of things that need to be done in the kingdom. There's a lot of need, and let me even reduce it down, a lot of things that need to be done in the church that's in the kingdom. And it, it has been a fairly common thing in the time of my pastoral ministry to find people who uh, don't want to do something and they say, that's not my gifting, that's not my calling. Now, my wife has, her entire life, had to step up to the plate and do things that nobody else would do. She is a PK. How many know what a PK is? Raise your hand. Pretty cute. Preacher's kid, pastor's kid. So when she was just the age where she needed to be in Sunday school, her dad recruited her and said, you're going to be a Sunday school teacher. And as far back as, how old were you when you first were a Sunday school teacher? Maybe 14. We don't have any 14-year-olds here that are Sunday school teachers. But can you imagine at that age, you don't get to be a part of what the youth are doing. You, you've got to step up to the plate. Now, I'm just going to put you on the spot. Did your dad say, are you called? <laughs> he said, do it. It wouldn't have done any good to say, that's not my gift. That's not my calling. You step up and you do what you've got to do. 
Now, sometimes if you're not gifted in a certain area, you just simply can't serve there. If I tell somebody here I need a carpenter to come and do some work, and you come to me and say, that's not my gift, but I'll come and try and build anything you want, it probably would not be the best thing to try and do that. Mm-hmm. There are certain things that need to be done in the church that don't require a real skill set. You just need to be there. just need to be do that. And so, I guess what I'm trying to say is, when there's a need... It's really important to be willing to step up and help meet the need. And please don't hide behind the excuse, I don't feel called. I don't feel led. You know, you just need to sometimes just help, regardless of how you feel. And maybe John Mark didn't feel like going to the Gentiles, but there was a need there. It didn't meet his personal expectations, requirements. I don't think I really care for doing that but we need many hands to make the kingdom move forward now I'm going to move quickly on from that because that's not the main point of my sermon on their journey Barnabas and Saul visited the island of Cyprus and there was an interesting thing that happened there that we'll quickly touch on they quickly encountered a Jewish sorcerer named uh, Elimus who happened to be the personal attendant of the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus. And Elimus worked deliberately, worked hard to oppose the ministry of Barnabas and Saul, now called Paul. So I'll try to remember now to call him Paul from now on. Paul was clearly annoyed that this sorcerer was following them around and harassing them. So here's what he did. He cursed Elimus with blindness. And it so impressed Sergius Paulus, the Roman proconsul, that he became a committed believer because of the power that he saw and authority that Paul had. So it really, something good came out of this. But here's what Paul said to to Elamus, the, the sorcerer. You're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. I deal with fellow ministers quite often through social uh, media discussion groups that we belong to. And it seems the younger generation has a whole different attitude about sternly dealing with people. You know what their biggest concern is? We don't want to offend them. I didn't hear a lot of concern about this in the generation I grew up in. Obviously, we don't want to offend people. But to back off from doing what you have to do because it might offend somebody, that's a problem. I even had a discussion with a a young minister not long ago. uh, And it was over... The whole pronoun issue. Uh, There was a pastor who had asked the question about somebody that was in his church that requested that he be referred to as she. And I think I had related to this to you before briefly. And so he was asking, what would you do? And of course, everybody's got an opinion, right? They quickly divide into two camps, the shoulds and the should nots. 
And so uh, I had taken the position that I'm not interested in playing along with their fantasies. Whatever they personally want to choose to do is their business, but I'm not going to enter into their fantasy world and reinforce to a man that he wants to pretend he's a woman, and I'm, going to, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I will treat them with respect. And then another young preacher in there got pretty angry with my response. He said, why should I want to offend them? Well, that, that's a weird way to establish a question. You shouldn't want to offend them. But you shouldn't refuse to tell the truth to keep from offending. Now, see, that's the problem we have with the younger generation. They, they are afraid the truth is going to offend. And in this situation, I can tell you how they would look at this, a similar situation. Well, what if you offend Elamus, and he never wants to get saved. Well, look who did get saved. The truth was spoken. You are a child of the devil. Your works are wicked. And Sergius Paulus accepted it because truth had its work done. And if Paul would have taken a softer approach, you poor misguided man. Sergius Paulus probably would not have been, have been as impressed with the authority and the truth that was being brought forth and it wouldn't have changed Elamus. <clears throat> so sometimes you have to take a more aggressive approach. I don't want to have to do that. But sometimes it's the only way that's going to get the truth across. Now, in one of my churches, we had a Sunday night prayer meeting. And oddly enough, a, a couple of women showed up that I did not know who they were. Don't even know how they found out we were having a prayer meeting. But that's okay. I didn't mind somebody being a part of our prayer meeting. So in that prayer meeting, much like we are here, people are in various locations in the church. They might be walking. They might be sitting. They might be laying face down in front of the Lord. We were scattered across the sanctuary. And these two women came in and joined in the prayer meeting. And I had people that would lock up the church when I was done. So the prayer meeting had gone as long as we typically do go, and I went home. I got a phone call, and it was one of my board members that called and said, Pastor, we have a problem. These two women, it's time to go, and they, they won't leave. So I said, I'll be right there. Jumped in the car, drove back to the church, and I walked in, and they were on the floor, on their back, uh, uh, eyes closed, Assuming somewhat of a trance-like uh, demeanor. So I went over to one woman, and I got down on my knees, and I whispered in her ear, our prayer meeting is now over. It's time for us to lock up and go home. And she completely ignored me. So I gave her a few minutes to process this and come down out of her trance and get herself together, and, and leave, and she didn't budge. So I had to go back and repeat a little more forcefully. Uh, we need to lock up the building and go home. It's time. And she ignored me again. And after repeated efforts to get her to understand what needed to be done, I finally decided the soft approach is not working. So I said, I didn't kneel down, didn't whisper anymore. I was done kneeling and whispering. And I stood above her and I said, I know you can hear me. 
It's time to go. Now get up. She didn't listen to me. So I did it again. And this time I didn't stop. I said, come on, get up. Get up. Get up. Get up. Let's go. Get up. I know you can hear me. Quit ignoring me. Get up. Get up. Finally, because I would not let her alone, she had to get up and go. I, you know, now this, this was a battle for who's going to win the authority is what this was. It's just somebody coming in and decide, I'm going to control this situation and make it awkward for everybody and me having a responsibility to say, no, you're not going to control this. You're making everybody uneasy here. Finally, they got up and left. When they did, I looked over. There's my deacon and his wife, and, and, her, and, and the wife is just bawling because it had upset her so bad because it came to the point where I had to use some force to say it's over. She didn't approve of that. Well, they're the ones that were worried about not being able to lock up and go home. <laughs> I guess after the fact, I should have said, you deal with it. I'm going home. But that's, that's ugly situations. You don't like to have to deal with people like that. But sometimes you come up against some spiritual obstinacy. And it was very clear to me, there was some sort of, a, there was something wrong with this. When somebody pretends to hide behind being so deep in prayer, they don't have a clue what's going on, in spite, of the fi- in spite of the fact I'm standing just a few feet from them and talking to them, and they're ignoring me. I said, no, nah, this is not going to work. And, you know, I wasn't going to let this, this false scenario perpetuate itself. Need to straighten this out. Now, I, I don't like to have to do that, but sometimes force is required. And certainly, Paul did not hesitate to speak to this sorcerer and tell him the truth straight up. You're a wicked man. And he rebuked him. And he, and God, now listen, Paul did not have the power to make this man blind. God honored what Paul proclaimed. Paul proclaimed with the approval and the spirit of God that you're going to be blind. And God said, I like it. Let's make him blind. Hmm. And he was stricken blind. So God was with this. He was not opposed to it. You want to know what God's attitude was. Well, later, Paul and his companions arrive in Pisidian Antioch. And at this point, Paul is named first. If you're reading this account, Barnabas and Paul now becomes Paul and Barnabas. Remains so the rest of the time that they're mentioned. Paul becomes the most prominent one. That's, that's subtle, but it's important. Barnabas is now the second banana. Paul has now assumed the leadership, at least as far as Luke was evaluating this partnership. And in Antioch, they are welcomed ambitiously into the synagogue and given the opportunity to speak a few words of encouragement to the congregation And so Paul gives a little sermon. He outlines the Old Testament events that led to the incarnation of Jesus through the line of David, setting forth Jesus as the promised Savior and crucified and risen. And Paul's sermon, calling on the Old Testament, is kind of like Stephen's sermon just before he was stoned. They go back to the Old Testament and they take illustrations to build up to their point. Stephen built it up to this point. You've always built your worship around a temple. But from now on, it's not going to be be a temple-centered worship. It's going to be a God-centered worship 
Worship him wherever you are and wherever you want. Now, Paul led it through the Old Testament examples to bring it up to the person of Jesus and his crucifixion, his resurrection, and the fact that he was truly the Messiah. And the sermon was so well received, they were invited, we'll come back next week and talk to us again. And they, during that week, many people followed Paul and Barnabas and, and through the week and sat under their teaching between Sabbaths. And then Paul came back on the next week, on the next Sabbath, and uh, after his sermon that time, then begin to begin to see the, the Jews coming forth who are objecting to the following that Paul is developing. And they begin, the Jews had built a team of people systematically to oppose the ministry of Paul and Barnabas in that town, and essentially they kicked them out of the city. And realizing that the ministry had now been blocked and rejected by this group of unreceptive Jews, Paul and Barnabas did this very interesting thing. It doesn't translate very well into our culture because we usually don't do this. I say usually, and I'll explain that. They shook the dust off their feet, and they left. This, in this culture, meant that they were symbolically saying, we don't really have any more obligation to you. We don't even want the dust of your city on us. We shake the dust off our feet, and we're out of here. Now, we had went through a very difficult time in one of our churches. And I, I don't mind telling you, uh, we left about as low and defeated as you can imagine. And I can tell you this for a fact, as low and defeated and worthless as I have ever felt in my life. Things just turned so sour for us. And as Ann and I waited for an available U-Haul to load up what belonged to us, and it was day after day waiting for U-Haul even become available, and we were in limbo, and it was miserable for us. And when we finally got our U-Haul and got our cars loaded up, and I think we were driving the U-Haul, and all we had was the pickup truck. Is that correct? Just the pickup Huh? Drove a car. Yeah, so so we, we, we towed the pickup behind the U-Haul, and we drove a car, and I drove the U-Haul. And as we were leaving town, Ann says, stop, stop, stop. What's wrong? She gets out. What do you think she did? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Stomping like a U, or an E-Wee, for those who don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she said, I'm stomping the dust off of my feet. <laughs> I thought, well, stomp some for me. <laughs> Symbolically, you just wanted to separate yourself from the worst experience you ever. Well, I don't want your dust going with me to Missouri. <laughs> Leave it there. That's the reason I said we don't usually... <laughs> Practice this, but you may want to keep that in mind. <laughs> now, now, I've gotten you to the 14th chapter, and this will go rather quickly. That's the bridge that gets us to the 14th chapter. And at, at this point in Scripture, what we see essentially is the birth of the missions program. 
God had been prodding his people to go out and take the gospel. He uses persecution in Jerusalem to drive Philip to the Sumerian revival. He uses a vision to drive Peter to go to Cornelius' house. But it's taking these supernatural things. But now the church is beginning to get the idea we need to be proactive in taking the gospel. Not just responding to persecution. Not just responding to these big visions. But we need to have a systematic plan to take this gospel to the entire world. So you're seeing the birth of missions. And Paul and Barnabas are now taking the initiative to form this mission ministry and take the gospel into these new territories. In chapter 13, we read of Paul and Barnabas having some success, but also meeting with resistance. And in chapter 14, we see, basically see the same thing. Success countered by some more opposition. But in the 14th chapter, we see hell coming up with a new plan. You know, we don't think it's really particularly odd whenever the kind of resistance that they are experiencing is persecution. Jesus warned them, you're going to be persecuted. But hell comes up with this new thing to try and defeat Paul and Barnabas. It's not just persecution. I'm going to read from the 11th verse. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Well, let, me, let, let me prep this a little bit. I, the scripture doesn't make a lot of sense unless I prep this. Paul and Barnabas saw a lame man. And it was just almost the story of Peter ministering to the lame man at the gate all over. Uh, arise and be healed. And the man jumped up and he was healed. And it so impressed the people that that's whenever they begin to respond like I'm now reading in this scripture. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. They're thinking of Greek mythology, the gods. Barnabas, so they called Barnabas Zeus. And they called Paul Hermes. That would have been Zeus's son because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, went and got some bulls and wreaths and brought them to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. They thought, this is Zeus. He deserves sacrifices. And when the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And so what we have so far is Paul and Barnabas minister healing to a lame man. The people think that their Greek gods have come to them. It's the only thing they can associate with this kind of miraculous activity. And they start praising them in their Lyconian language. And Paul and Barnabas don't speak that language. They don't know what they're babbling. They don't know what they're saying. All they know is they're happy. So Paul and Barnabas, their first impression has to be, wow, these people are really eager for the good news. And it wasn't until somebody made an interpretation of what they were doing that Paul realized, whoa, this is not good. At first, he was happy for them. They were happy for him until they learned what was really happening. Now, I went to Mexico, to uh, uh, Ciudad Victoria, and helped build a little church down there. We drove our church van into the country and and back out. So 
you, know, you, you really get immersed into the culture when you're gonna drive through the country and shop at their stores and fill up at their gas stations. And, and so we came to a checkpoint. Young military men out at a checkpoint, and they stopped us. He had a gun strapped around his shoulder. I'm in a strange country. I'm not sure what's going on here. My Spanish has never been very good. I've taken Spanish one, Spanish two, but I've never taken conversational Spanish. So if you think I can really carry on a long conversation for you, with you, I'm going to stare at you like a mule looking at a new gate. I don't know what. I'll catch once in a while. So this young man, I rolled down my window, and he come up, and he rattled off some Spanish to me. And one of the things that I know in Spanish is C. What can it hurt? Let's be agreeable. <laughs> See, he rattles off in Spanish something I don't know, but I got to pretend what he's saying. It, it, maybe he's saying, uh, are you enjoying your stay here? See, his eyes, <laughs> his eyes got as wide as they could get it, and he pulled his gun off. I said, what did I say? What did he say? And he held it up, and he asked the question again. He was wanting to know, did I have any guns in the van? See? <laughs> when I finally figured out what the message was, the word no works in both languages. No, 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 no. You can make foolish assumptions when you don't know the language. <laughs> Paul and Barnabas didn't know what they were saying, but hey, look, you know, they're receptive here. No, they're calling you Zeus and Hermes. And Paul is, no, 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 ha, ha, no, don't do this. You don't make sacrifices to us. This is not about us. This is about God. And how do you communicate all this to somebody in a foreign language? The challenges of ministry. Missions ministry were very real for Paul and Barnabas. They were going into a different culture. They were going into a different language. They were trying to, to minister to people. The only thing they could minister was healing, but they couldn't minister words because they didn't speak their language. It's hard to be a missionary. Now we have refined ways of putting people on the missions field, put them through language school, accelerate their learning of the language. It just takes them two or three months in a conversational uh, language to get them up and running. And even so, they get on there and they don't know, yeah, in, in their foreign field, they don't know everything that everybody's saying. So it is difficult. But here's the thing that hell did. Hell, you can't help but marvel at the desperate creativity of hell to oppose the successful, successful spreading of the gospel. Uh, like I said, we're not surprised by the threats that come against them. We knew they were going to be threatened. We're not surprised by the persecutions against the apostles. We're not surprised that beheaded James. We're sorry, but we're not surprised. Uh, we're not surprised they imprisoned Peter. But hell comes at them with this whole new thing, and that is to tie their success to popularity and gain. They had come in, and they healed the man, and suddenly they are treated like gods, and gifts are brought to them and sacrifices are going to be made to them and lesser people than Barnabas and Saul would have cashed in on this 
And the sad part about it is in ministry today, there are preachers who cash in on that. God does something miraculous through them. God does something uh, uh, during their ministry, because of their ministry, and suddenly it goes to their head. And it, it, Has anybody ever told you what the three major things, temptations against preachers is? Power, money, and sex. Those three things are the biggest issues that bring down preachers. Anytime that they meet with those things available to them, they have a choice to make about whether they're going to allow those opportunities to corrupt them or not. And you look at the scandals that have gone on in Christianity, and those elements have consistently been involved in the failure of people in the ministry. Become so popular that anything you say, people will amen you. And I've, I, I've seen the evidence of that in one of the most popular evangelists that we've known in modern times as it became so persuasive that he said some of the most incredibly cruel and, and ignorant things and he could bring the Colosseum, he could bring the stadium to their feet because they loved what he said and the way he said it. But it just, it, just made, it just broke our hearts to hear this kind of nonsense and this kind of junk come from somebody who was drunk with power and drunk with riches and eventually fail to sexual immorality. And so that's what hell begins to throw at Paul and Barnabas. I'm so glad that they didn't yield to that. We don't want to be gods. We don't want your offerings. We, don't, we just come here in the name of God. And that shows the integrity of these missionaries. Flattery didn't work. It didn't even come close. And the narrative quickly turns to hell's next attack. Some angry Jews came from Antioch. 110 miles away, some angry Jews came from Antioch. And 20 miles away from Iconium. And they met here. Specifically for one purpose, they came to battle Paul against Paul and Barnabas and their ministry. Now you understand, that's the only reason they traveled. You understand how hard it is to go 110 miles in those days. Were these people committed to their mission? You bet they were. They traveled 110 miles to stop Paul and Barnabas. They were virtually the emissaries of hell doing physical and spiritual battle against the emissaries of heaven. And in the physical realm, hell struck this powerful blow against Paul because if you read the narrative, these people beat him to the point where he, they, they figured he was dead. They beat him lifeless. And they drug that body outside of the town and left it there for the vultures and the predators. And the Bible, Luke simply says that the, the, the disciples gathered around him. I'm assuming they prayed, right? Doesn't say they did, but let's, why assume otherwise? They gathered around him. Maybe they thought he was dead. And pretty soon, he began to move. And he picked himself up. And he went back in town. That little story right there, it's so easy to fly over it and not see the power of that. Beaten to the point of death, dragged out of town, and when he gets up, he had options. One option is, is I didn't sign up for this. 
I quit. The other option is, God called me to do this, and nobody's going to stop me until his body, until his heart quits beating. And he got up, and he went right back into town. Found Barnabas. And of course, they figured out there wasn't a lot they could do there. And they decided to take their axe somewhere else. But I wouldn't have even gone back in that town in the flesh. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to say, let me go back to the people who beat me. But he went back. He was devoted to the cause. There's so much here to ponder. We're, we're deeply inspired by Paul's unwavering determination. This is the stuff heroes are made of. This would have been enough to discourage many people, if not most people. And the one thing that hell did not want to see Paul do is the very thing that Paul did. Hell did not want to see Paul pick himself up and keep on going. Hell wanted him down for the count. Stay down, son. Stay down. We're just going to keep beating you down. And Paul got back up and went right back into ministry. Hell didn't want to see that at all. Hell wants to knock you around a little bit. You hear what I'm telling you? Hell wants to make you quit serving God. Hell wants to slap you around. Hell wants to make you so disappointed, so discouraged, so beat up that you're going to, here's what hell wants you to do. You understand? It's their plan. Hell wants you to say, I quit. Hell wants you to say, I I'm never going back to church. Hell wants you to say, I'm giving up on this Christianity. It's not living up to my expectations. Hell wants you to walk out on your marriage. Hell wants you to desert your family. Hell wants you to quit everything. Hell wants you to just, to just to give up. This isn't worth it. I quit. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to do something else. I'm not going to do this anymore. But quitting wasn't on Paul's mind. He just went back and made new plans. We'll go somewhere else. We'll do what we have to do. We'll go back to Lystra, where he was mistaken for being a Greek god, where he was ambushed and beaten to death. We'll go back to the cities where they kicked us out of one, where we had to flee the other two because to avoid untimely conflict. But we're going to go back. And you know, you might, you might pull in to the port at the end of life with your ship battered and broken. But if you pull into port, that's all that matters. Let me use another metaphor. You may cross the finish line at the end last. But as long as you cross, that's all that matters. This is not a marathon where you have to be the first one across. This is just a test where you have to cross the line. I've seen marathon runners where the body has become completely uh, worn out and they, they, they lose control of their legs. When they try to even walk, they can't run anymore. When they try to walk, they can't coordinate. Their legs are rubber and they fall down. And then they get up and they fall down again. Then they crawl. I saw one particular marathon runner was in such sad shape they had lost complete control of their bowels and they were just covered in filth and they were crawling across the line and they didn't win. They weren't first, but they weren't going to quit. 
And I'll tell you what, people, I know it hurts sometimes. I know it's difficult, but the one message here is you can't quit. You got to have a faith that says, I'm going through. Nothing's going to keep me from making it there. You might endure a lot of pain and trouble getting there, but God wants you to stick with it. And here's the secret to Paul's unflinching endurance. He had this motto he lived by. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. That's the, that's the cities where he already had trouble. He, returned, he went right back to the cities where they rejected him. And strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, here's what Paul said. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Why don't you underline that? Why don't you highlight that? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Who promised you a rose garden? Who told you it was going to be easy? I didn't. It's not going to be easy. It might be a struggle every day of your life, but you can't give up. Christianity tempered with struggles and hardships is infinitely stronger than lazy boy Christianity. As much as we often wish we could find an easier path, there is no benefit to an easier path. We are made stronger by our struggles. And it was the theme of Paul's life. He later wrote to Timothy, his protege, the second letter he wrote to Timothy. And he made reference back to this very time, this incident. And here's his words to Timothy. You, Timothy, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, love and endurance, persecution, suffering. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch? Iconium, Lystra, there's the three towns. He's talking about this, writing to Timothy. You know what happened there. The persecutions I endured, and he said, the Lord rescued me from all of them. And then he says this, and you've heard this verse, but you, maybe you didn't remember the context. Then he says this. Maybe you recognize it in the King James. Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Here's the translation I've chose. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I guess the question comes is, do you want to live a godly life? You think, well, I don't want to get, live a godly life because I want life to be easy. Now, that doesn't mean if you don't live a godly life, life's going to be easy. You're going to suffer no matter what you choose to do because life is full of suffering. Where are you going to go? that you don't suffer. Let me know where that is. But all who live in godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, and God will honor that. And God will use that to build you and perfect you. Don't, do you understand Christianity is not a bubble to protect you against troubles? It's a commitment to serve and obey God regardless of the cost. And I know this message has come through multiple times in the book of Acts because it's one continuous running theme throughout Acts is the persecution of Christians. It's just there throughout the book. 
anybody asks you what Acts is about, tell them it's about advancing the kingdom of God through great conflict. If it's true then, it's still true today. Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to have problems. But it's the kind of problems where God will build you into the kind of person he wants you to be. Problems, persecutions, trials, tribulation, troubles, you can't avoid them. You might as well take it while serving God so that your eternal reward will have some value. Will you bow your heads?